This is the History of Islam podcast. I'm Elias Bohadad. Last episode, we left off with a brief foray into the persecution that some of Muhammad's followers suffered through. We left off specifically with Abu Bakr's freeing of Bilal. Abu Bakr did his very best to try and help his fellow brothers and sisters in faith, freeing many slaves whose lives he most likely saved. He would mostly try to help those in the most dire of situations, like Bilal for example. Another example would be a slave girl who belonged to the Adi clan. The Adi clan was a clan of a zealous opponent of Islam, known as Umar ibn al-Khattab. Umar's clan, the Bani Adi, were a respectable clan of the Quraysh, but not exactly one of its leading clans. However, Umar's mother was from the powerful Makhzum clan. In fact, she was Abu Jahl's sister. And Umar was almost certainly greatly influenced by his uncle. Umar was, to put it simply, a traditionalist, a conservative to the bone. The way he saw it, Mecca and the Quraysh were fine as they were. The most important thing of all was for the unity of the Quraysh to be maintained and for the society that he lived in now to remain the same as the one he was born and raised in. Therefore, in his view, Muhammad's movement had to be simply stopped. Umar was a man of unwavering character, and so his methodology was ruthless. As a result, his name became often paired with Abu Jahl. He and his uncle would strike fear into the hearts of the followers of Muhammad, particularly the weak and unprotected. When Umar discovered that a slave from his clan had been swayed by Muhammad's words, he made torture a regular fixture in her life. He would beat her constantly. And when he did stop, he would tell her that he only stopped as he was too bored, or in some cases, too tired to continue. Abu Bakr could see that the poor girl's days were numbered, and so he bought her and freed her. Unfortunately, there were limits to what Abu Bakr could achieve. There were limits to what he could do. He just did not have the money to buy every slave in Mecca who was a Muslim. And even if he did, he would not be able to protect them all if multiple clans chose to turn against him. He simply could not help everybody. Today, we push on right ahead and continue to look at a few cases of those Abu Bakr was unable to support. As I mentioned in the last episode, the persecution of Muhammad's followers in Mecca was performed and confined to a clan-by-clan basis. This meant that in accordance to the unwritten Bedouin laws, each clan dealt with its own. A Muslim from the Beni Jumah clan, for example, would be dealt with by those from his clan and his clan only. He would not be touched by a pagan from another clan, for example, the Beni Taim. This was because of, despite the individual's treason by converting from the religion of his forefathers to the religion of Islam, his fellow clansmen 
would still deem it unacceptable and extremely dishonorable for them to allow their clansmen to be hurt by somebody from outside the clan. For this reason, the measures of persecution that Muhammad's followers faced spanned literally from both extremities of the spectrum. The figurehead of pagan persecution of Muslims in Mecca and the fiercest opponent of Islam during its early days in Mecca was probably Abu Jahl, a member of the powerful Makhzum clan. He's a man we have introduced before. He's also a man who has been dubbed as the Pharaoh of Islam. Abu Jahl, original name Amr ibn Hisham, was known as Abu al-Hakam in Mecca, the father of wisdom. Muhammad's followers soon turned him into Abu Jahl, the father of ignorance. Abu Jahl tackled the issue of Muhammad's novel religion in the following manner. If an individual of great social standing and importance with strong clans and strong relations to defend them converted to the monotheistic religion of Muhammad, left behind the religion of his forefathers, their pagan beliefs, and with them the ways of the Quraysh, Abu Jahl would be limited to verbal abuse at the very most. This was because the institution of clan protection would render the individual who had converted untouchable. This was the lenient, merciful end of the spectrum, occupied by the strong and wealthy amongst Muhammad's followers. They face little to no persecution. An example of a Muslim at this end of the spectrum will be a man who we find in every crevice of Islam's early history and its subsequent rise, the ever-present Abu Bakr. Abu Bakr was at the lenient end of the spectrum due to the fact that he was, first of all, a Qurashi, even though his clan, the Bani Taim, were not amongst the premier clans of the Quraysh, Abu Bakr was still nonetheless a member of the Quraysh tribe. Clan protection was there for him, and on a more personal level, Abu Bakr was an accomplished merchant. Through his trading activities, he was able to acquire a respectable fortune. Mecca was a city of merchants, a place where naturally money talks. It always helps to have wealth at your fingertips. Another often underlooked thing that Abu Bakr was able to accumulate throughout his life and career as a merchant were contacts. Contacts and friends, people who would support him and maybe even serve as allies, ready to aid him when he needed them. Abu Bakr was a generally well-liked man in Mecca, both before and after his conversion to Islam, though obviously he was much more well-liked by the majority of Mecca before his conversion. And this was thanks to his reputation, a reputation that he built over many years as a polite and well-mannered individual. This was exceedingly important and vital to Abu Bakr's livelihood, as another of Abu Jahl's policies, or tactics if you like, was to organize boycotts against any merchant who decided that joining Muhammad's faith was a good idea. And this was an attempt to, quote, reduce them to beggars. Another person who would fall under the umbrella of little to no persecution, uh, another person on the lenient end of the spectrum, is Hamza ibn Abdul Muttalib, Muhammad's uncle. Hamza is on this end of the spectrum due to his privilege from birth as a Qurashi from the Beni Hashim clan, which was one of the premier clans of Mecca, 
And on a personal level, we have already gone over in a uh, in a previous episode the superior martial abilities and qualities that Hamza possessed and was renowned throughout Mecca for. I would just like to mention that when I said that those amongst Muhammad's followers who face little to no persecution were the strongest and wealthiest Muslims, please bear in mind that this also includes strength and wealth in relations. What I mean by this is, take for example one of Muhammad's first and earliest followers, his very own cousin, Ali. Ali, a young lad, would have what amounted to very little when it came to literal wealth and literal power. But simply by virtue of being from the Hashim clan, one of Quraysh's premier clans, Ali was strong and wealthy in relation. He had a great clan to protect him and a vast network of relations who could support him in various ways. We saw in one of our previous episodes recounting Muhammad's early life this clan support system, if you like, in action. This was when Abu Talib faced with a financial crisis due to a drought in Mecca had the financial burden of raising two sons eased off of his shoulders by his brother Abbas and his nephew Muhammad who each took in a son of his. It is also worth mentioning at this point that thanks to Abu Talib the Bani Hashim clan and their closely allied Bani Muttalib clan was one of the few clans in Mecca that refrained completely from causing Muslims any harm at all. As we move from one extremity to another, we go to the opposite end of the spectrum of persecution in Mecca. If an individual with low social standing in Mecca, and more importantly, someone with no relations, no clan to protect them, was discovered to have joined the ranks of Islam, then Abu Jahl could resort to violence and torture. And he did. Abu Jahl actively promoted his policy and tried to get as many of his compatriots to match him, or even exceed him if that was possible, in his hostility towards Islam and its followers. He was quite successful and influential in this regard. His magnetic personality, which charmed and influenced many in Mecca, would result in Abu Jahl's personal policy, which we just described quickly, reflecting how many of the Quraysh's clans chose to react to and chose to treat Islam and the followers of the novel monotheistic creed. One of the main reasons why Abu Jahl's image has been nothing than that of a villain in Islamic history is due to the widespread belief that the life of Islam's first marcher was ended by his hands. The main attribute that made one weak in Mecca was the absence of clan or some sort of third-party protection. A man who carried this attribute was Ammar ibn Yasir, Ammar the son of Yasir. Ammar was the son of two slaves who, although they had been freed, remained clients to the clan that their masters belonged to, the Makhzum clan. Ammar's father Yasir was an Arab who was originally from a clan in the Yemen and through the course of his life his travels would lead him to Mecca where he decided to settle. And in doing so he decided to put himself under the protection of a man from the Makhzum clan. Yasir lived his life in loyal servitude 
as a client of the Bani Mahzum, and he was eventually married to a slave girl named Sumayya. Ammar was the result of their marriage. Ammar was a, another within the long list of people brought into Islam by Abu Bakr. He was a relatively early convert, joining the faith within less than two years after Muhammad went public with his religion. So that puts Ammar's conversion sometime between 613 and 615 AD. Through their son, Ammar's parents Yasir and Sumayya eventually followed the same path that he had set himself upon. And they too would testify that there was only one God and that Muhammad was his messenger. Unfortunately for them, their conversion came at a time when Quraysh were no longer idle and were in fact ramping up the persecution of Muslims in Mecca. As clients, freedmen with no protection whatsoever, the future certainly did not look bright. On this intolerant, merciless end of the spectrum, we find, as aforementioned, the weakest and poorest amongst Muhammad's followers, who were persecuted in various ways. Some were simply imprisoned, many were tortured. The standard protocol seems to be the reception of beatings and floggings, the denial of food and drink, and finally, a form of torture somewhat unique to Arabia. Muhammad's followers would be strapped to a rock out in the scorching sun. If you recall from one of our previous episodes where I described the attributes of the camel, I mentioned one attribute, one physical attribute that made the camel well suited to its environment. I mentioned that they had almost like natural pads on their knees, which enabled them to sit down in the hot sands of Arabia. Were it not for those pads, they would be cooked alive. Well, weak and poor amongst Muhammad's followers were humans. They did not have any pads to shield them from the heat. And so the effect of being tied to a rock that has been out in the desert sun, roasting for hours upon hours upon hours, is the same as being tied to a spit directly above a blazing fire. For the likes of Yasir and his family, torture became a regular fixture in their lives. And just like Bilal, their tormentors would promise an end to it all, if only they reverted to the old gods and cursed Muhammad and his monotheistic innovation. But just like most of Muhammad's so-called weak followers, they would endure through it all and remain steadfast. The Prophet would look on heartbroken, heartbroken by his inability to help them, only able to comfort them and console them with his voice, his words. And he would say, Patience, family of Yasir, you have been appointed paradise. Sabran ya al Yasir famaw'idukum al-jannah, which has become almost like a famous quote that Muslims uh, are aware of and attribute to the Prophet. It is extremely difficult for us as citizens of the world in 2016, living lives that, in comparison to the lives of our ancestors, are lives of extreme comfort. To truly relate to the suffering that others have experienced, it becomes even more difficult and desensitizing when the methods of torture are being related to us in the form of what is essentially a list. Some of those who were tortured were able to endure and remain steadfast to their newfound faith 
while many others simply could not withstand the pain that they were being dealt. Decades after Muhammad's time in Mecca as a prophet, Abdullah ibn Abbas, a cousin of the prophet, was asked if the torture that Muhammad's followers received was so unbearable that apostasy was excusable. Ibn Abbas replied that it was indeed excusable and in fact it would happen a lot. The cumulative effect of beatings out in the sun combined with the lack of food and water would make a man so weak that they were unable to even sit. The tortured would be so utterly helpless, so completely defeated that if they were asked if a beetle was walking by, if that beetle was their god, then they would answer yes, just for a chance to ease their suffering. There were very few who endured till the dire end. One of them was Ammar's mother, Sumayya. Sumayya simply refused to abandon Islam. She simply refused to allow the chiefs of Mecca to bend her will. Her unwavering defiance in the face of the Bani Makhzum's torture and in the face of Abu Jahl was an insult that he and the rest of his clan could not take. And with nothing, no one present to protect Sumayya from her transgressors, it was all too easy for the Bani Makhzum to end her life. And so they did. Sumayya was killed and Islam now had its first marcher. Just as the Quraysh had had their hands tied, unable to stop Muhammad from his preaching, Muhammad now had his hands tied, unable to help any of his weak followers who were suffering through torture. His solution to this predicament was to advise some of his followers to leave Mecca, escape the torture, escape the persecution, and head towards Abyssinia, a kingdom that lied to the east of Mecca, across the Red Sea. A place that had a just king, whose only intolerance was towards oppression. Muhammad's followers took heed of their prophet's words and began to one by one respond to his call to migration. That is all for today's episode. I'm going to end it there so that next episode we can start afresh with the migration to Abyssinia. Before I leave you, however, I just want to read out what is probably my favorite review of the History of Islam podcast. The reason why I'm doing this is to encourage those of you who are actively engaging with the podcast by writing reviews, reading the episode guides, checking out all the resources on the blog, uh, sending me messages with your thoughts and suggestions, is to encourage you guys to keep doing that and to also encourage some of you who have not done any of those things to maybe give it a go and in a way make your own contribution to this podcast because I really do appreciate the messages and the suggestions that I do get and they are taken into full consideration. My ambition is to improve the podcast all the time, to raise it to a higher standard than the one that it is currently at the ultimate goal is for a podcast to be as informative as a lecture but as entertaining as an audio movie it's an almost unattainable goal but it is always best to 
strive for what seems to be beyond you. Anyways, this is probably my favorite review, as I have said, and it's by a listener who has dubbed themselves Scholasticus Aurelius. The review is on iTunes, and it is titled Optimus. Obviously, I'm going to read a positive review. Uh, It's unlikely to be my favorite review if it's not positive. And um, Aurelius has given five stars out of five. Thank you very much. And he goes, wow. If one is to rate a history podcast based on the first 12 episodes in true Lars Brownsworth style, then the history of Islam is the best one yet. Most new podcasters struggle with sound quality, voice quality, or inadequate grasp of content. Even Mike Duncan's The History of Rome suffered from all of these for a while. Elias Belhadad suffers from none of these problems. He obviously is a native Arabic speaker, although apparently resident in the UK and familiar with Western cultural idiom. The level of detail in the podcast is far richer than any undergraduate course, and he tells an interesting narrative. His analogy between the camel and the steam engine is simply brilliant. I look forward to more good things to come. So do I. Thank you very much to the writer of this review. Fortunately, I do not know your real name. I can only go by the name you have put on iTunes. Um, Thank you very much. I just want to let you know that Upon reading this review, I was literally happy for days. I just had a massive grin on my face like an idiot. Anyway, as you all know by now, the History of Islam podcast is a member of the Agora Podcast Network, which is a collective of entertaining educational podcasts. One of the many little features that we have going on here at Agora is the podcast of the month. And for this month, the month of October, the podcast of the month is Ben Jacobs' Wittenberg to Westphalia. It's a history of the Thirty Years' War, and it covers the Protestant Reformation. Some very interesting stuff, and the scope of the podcast is actually a bit wider than that. It doesn't just focus on the minute details of the Thirty Years' War. It's also more of a history of the early modern period in Europe. So very interesting stuff. The Thirty Years' War are a very overlooked event today. Their impact was absolutely massive. I mean, some people have labelled the Thirty Years' War as the true First World War because of the plethora of characters and players that were involved in it and the lasting legacy that it still has today. As you know, the Treaty of Westphalia is said to be the true beginning of the modern nation state. So definitely recommend that you check it out. Just head over to agorapodcastnetwork.com to find out more or to the podcast personal website. If you just Google Wittenberg to Westphalia, you'll easily find it. I'll put a link in the episode guide also. That's all from me for now. Thank you very much for listening to the History of Islam podcast. I've been Elias Belhadad and I'll see you next episode, which will be in two weeks time. I look forward to hearing from you all. Goodbye. Thank you.